I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about how Justice Gorsuch is ruffling feathers, recent oral arguments, and we interview former Solicitor General Paul Clement. So Justice Gorsuch has been making a splash. Uh, He has been getting some flack for a couple of speeches he gave over the last few weeks. One was in my home state at the University of Kentucky College of Law, go Wildcats, and he wrangled many on the left for appearing with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who of course is a Republican. Uh, Some people have complained that this looked too much like a victory lap of sorts, and said that it undermines his pledge at his confirmation hearing to be impartial and independent. But in the speech, uh, Gorsuch talked about how judges have a modest role to play um, in our democracy and and defer to the political branches on policy issues. He also talked about inheriting Justice Scalia's office and his, uh, with that, his stuffed elk head, known as Leroy, which I thought was uh, kind of cute, this little anecdote he included. He says, the truth is I'm delighted to share the space with Leroy because it turns out we share quite a lot in common. We're both native Colorado We both received a rather shocking summons to Washington, D.C., and neither of us is ever going to forget Justice Scalia. It sounds like uh, no one really wanted Leroy, and that's how (laughs) Gorsuch ended up with it. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah, I've seen, I haven't seen it in person, but I've seen pictures of it, and it is a very, very large elk head that is uh, adorning the wall of, of Justice Gorsuch's office. Um, so anyway, he, he gave another speech. Tiffany, do you want to talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, so Gorsuch gave another speech at the Trump Hotel. Um, it was mostly focused on civics and civility. He spoke to a conservative group that teaches civics, the Fund for American Studies. Uh, but he met about three dozen protesters when he spoke there. So the Trump Hotel, as many of our listeners know, is involved in a few lawsuits. Uh, liberal groups have sued the president for violating the the Foreign Emoluments Clause, which um, is a provision in the Constitution that says the president can't receive payments from foreign governments unless Congress allows it. These suits are kind of ridiculous. Um, You can read our colleague uh, John Michael Siebler's pieces on them. It's funny that they're complaining about this because, you know, does this mean a justice can never book a room at a major hotel chain uh, since they're always involved in lawsuits? It's like, Sorry, Neil Gorsuch, only bed and breakfast, who have in advance promised never to litigate. Um, but, you know, I think it, it indicates the real issue um, that here, the CNN report that I read said the protesters lamented the optics of Gorsuch speaking at an event in a building named for the man who placed him on the bench. Like the horror that it that it has Trump's name. The idea that the pres that Gorsuch is endorsing the president by speaking to a group who booked a room at the Trump Hotel is is pretty absurd. Yeah, so uh, writing for The New Yorker, Jeffrey Tubin published an article this week titled, How Badly Is Neil Gorsuch Annoying the Other Supreme Court Justices? And it's kind of an asinine article, to be honest. But he goes on to argue that Neil Gorsuch is embarrassing the court. And he talks about these two speeches. And not to pick on Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but any discussion of the court's norms that doesn't mention her very frequent and very public comments about pending cases, I think is seriously incomplete. You know, just, uh, I think, last week or maybe the week before, she gave an interview with Charlie Rose at CBS where she talked about uh, a case that the justices heard this this very week in in, in oral argument. She this was the Wisconsin political gerrymandering case, and she said that this is it's drawing a map so people think why bother voting this is a secure republican district or this is a secure democratic district so my vote doesn't count that's not a good thing for democracy now i don't know about you tiffany but i think that that would have some serious implications for her impartiality and her fairness in in hearing the case out of wisconsin 
Yeah, I'm also not sure what Jeff Tubin tries to get at by writing these articles. One thing he complained about was Justice Gorsuch wrote too many dissents and he was too outspoken. But it's like he also wrote this article a few years ago um, saying that Clarence Thomas not asking questions at oral argument was this great atrocity. I was just like, what do you want, Jeff Jeff Dubin, <laughs> do you want them to talk or do you not want them to talk? What are you trying to do here? Yeah, he, he seems to be suggesting that, that Gorsuch ruffled feathers by asking too many questions in his, his very first oral argument. And I think we previously talked about this uh, in our first season of SCOTUS 101, where he did ask the most questions of a you know first-time justice uh, since Justice Sotomayor, who held the previous record. So, you know, I think the fact that, uh, that he and Sotomayor were both experienced appeals court judges coming to the Supreme Court was maybe less of a transition than uh, than for others who have not had judicial service before. But anyway, it was a little bit of an infuriating read, but it's at The New Yorker. How badly is Neil Gorsuch annoying the other Supreme Court justices? Read it if you want to get your blood pressure up. Though I think it's safe to say Jeff Tubin is annoying the justices and the rest of us more than anyone <laughs> Even else. Even more. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so next we're going to talk about a couple of the recent oral arguments. So first up, on Tuesday of this week, the Supreme Court heard Gill versus Whitford, and this is a challenge to Wisconsin's partisan gerrymandering. So back in 2011, the Republican-dominated legislature in in Wisconsin drew up the district lines, and it heavily seemed to favor their party. In fact, in the following election, they won 60 out of the 99 seats, even though they only won 48% of the vote statewide. So a group of challengers went to federal court and challenged this, arguing that this was an unconstitutional political partisan gerrymander. Now, Wisconsin admits that nobody likes partisan gerrymandering. In fact, there are a number of Republican politicians who have come out against partisan gerrymandering, including Senator John McCain, who I think uh, was on one of the amicus briefs supporting the challengers in this case, and former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who started the Terminate Gerrymandering Pack. He uh, was in the courtroom this week. So just because we don't like something, though, doesn't make it unconstitutional. So the big issue here is, can courts even hear partisan gerrymandering claims? Previously, the court held that unlike racial gerrymandering claims, where minority group will say we're being discriminated against in the way that these districts are drawn, partisan gerrymandering claims are not justiciable. That's because it's something that's better left to the political branches. And I don't know about you, Tiffany, but I, I think it would be pretty impossible to take the politics out of redistricting. And just imagine if, if judges are given the green light to invalidate redistricting plans because one party seems to be favored over the other. I mean, are we really going to trust judges to be fair? Consider, you know, all of the federal judges who have joined the resistance movement in the challenge to the travel ban. It's a political issue and it, it it is perhaps something that should be left to the political branches. Also, there are so many redistricting plans around the country. I don't think the the courts want to get involved in arbitrating, you know, every single one of them. Right. So as a practical matter, if the court sides with the challengers in this case, it might as well rename itself the Redistricting Commission, Review Commission of America, because after every census and every time a legislature redraws their districts, there's going to be a wave of lawsuits. So, as I mentioned, the court has previously said that these are non-justiciable. This, this was from a 2004 case, the Viath case, which I think was a challenge to Pennsylvania's redistricting plan. And Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, ever the swing vote, 
uh, eyes are all on him, he wrote in a concurrence that he wouldn't foreclose the possibility that the court could hear these claims, but he was searching for a judicially manageable standard. So at the oral argument, he was he was definitely searching for this standard, throwing out ideas like maybe maybe this violates the First Amendment, that extreme gerrymandering basically silences the political voice of a minority party. And he likened it to one party stealing the campaign signs of another. Uh, the challengers who are led by Paul Smith, who also argued the Viath case from 2004, he told the justices, you are the only body that can end this practice. You're, you're my only hope. And they you know, attempted to give Kennedy some sort of judicially manageable standard throughout the litigation. I mean, they, they've come up with, you know, they've relied on different social science measures for trying to find this alleged partisan bias in districts, including this new one that was developed by some law professors a few years ago called the efficiency gap. And this basically claims that you're packing so many members of one party into districts that uh, their votes over a certain threshold are basically wasted. So if you have a district where it's 75 percent, you know, 75 percent of the district votes for the Democrat, then then uh, all of those votes over 50 percent are essentially wasted. But I think that, you know, another way of looking at, at, at you know, these clusters of large clusters of, of voters from one party or another is that like minded people tend to cluster and live near each other. And Democrats tend to be very heavily drawn to urban areas. So obviously they're going to have a higher, you know, number of, the, of their votes in, in urban areas. So but one of the biggest problems is that the the efficiency gap theory would potentially invalidate one in three of the existing redistricting plans throughout the country. And that includes ones that have been drawn up by courts. So I think it shows um, some some serious issues with it. I also think the court should be skeptical of listening to a bunch of law professors <laughs> yeah. who are trying to come up with these sorts of theories. Yes, the, the Supreme Court is not made up of social scientists, so I'm not sure that they should be using that as, uh, as ways for uh, deciding if the Constitution permits or forbids something. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch were, were pretty skeptical of relying on these statistical tools um, at the oral argument. Roberts called them gobbledygook, and <laughs> Gorsuch compared it to his secret steak rub, his steak sauce, I guess. You know, a little bit of this, a little dash of this, but I won't tell you how much. And yeah. I actually saw that Kevin Daly from the Daily Caller had tweeted that uh, he was determined to find out <laughs> the ingredients of Justice Gorsuch's actual steak rub, which I think is kind of funny. Yeah, I think Robert Robert Barnes tweeted something about this, too. I think turmeric or something like yeah, that was, was part of it. And people were, you know, up in arms, uh, you know, some in favor, some not. But I think we should investigate this. Definitely. We we need to, maybe we'll even you know, bottle it and sell it. The SCOTUS 101 Gorsuch Secret Steak Rub. Right next to the Antonin Scalia Pure Applesauce. <laughs> yeah. So one sort of escape hatch uh, in, in, in the case, if the court decides it doesn't want to reach the merits of, uh, you know, of this partisan gerrymandering is a question of whether the challengers even have standing to bring this claim. So generally, you need standing to get into court and you can't rely on a sort of general generalized claim of injury, you have to have something that's specific and individualized. And the, the challengers here are challenging not their specific districts, which is what is generally required in, in these sorts of cases, but they're making a, a statewide challenge. So I think that could be um, a potential escape hatch uh, if the conservatives you know, are worried about where the case could be going uh, and are able to bring Kennedy along for that. So the court also heard uh, DC v. Wesby, which was about whether the police had probable cause to arrest partiers at a vacant house in DC. So 
the police get a call from some neighbors of this house that there's a party going on at this vacant house. So the cops show up. They find strippers and people smoking marijuana. They contact the homeowner. They finally get his number, and he says no one is supposed to be there. These people are trespassing. But the partiers, on the other hand, claim that a woman named Peaches, who also sometimes goes by the name Tasty, invited them there. So I think we got some insight into some of the justices' partying habits from their (laughs) younger days. Uh, Justice Kagan said that she sometimes attended large parties when she, you know, didn't know who the host was. And Breyer and Sotomayor suggested that, you know, if someone invites you to a party at Joe's, you may not be checking his lease to make sure he owns the place. But on the other hand, if you show up at Joe's and there's, like, no furniture in his house and... There was a mattress on the floor. (laughs) Yes, a mattress. (laughs) Not a bed, a mattress. And there are, like, strippers and people doing drugs. You may start to question whether or not you're, like, allowed to be on that premises. I think Justice Kennedy only asked one question. So it was following up on uh, whether some of the partygoers thought the party was a bachelor party or a birthday party. And Kennedy said, so Peaches, a woman... Is the host at a bachelor party? Um, so, but I think ultimately it appears that a majority of justices are going to find for the police officers in this case, saying they have probable cause to arrest arrest these people under these circumstances at this vacant house. Yeah, definitely uh, an interesting interesting case. So next week, the justices were supposed to hear the travel ban case on Tuesday morning, uh, but they canceled the oral argument, and they haven't filled it with any with anything else. So I wonder, uh, what do you think the justices are going to be up to Tuesday morning? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe they could take a field trip somewhere, or... Maybe they'll take Justice Thomas's bus, not <laughs> RV, up to Gettysburg for the morning. <laughs> We're pleased to have Paul Clement with us today. Paul is a partner at Kirkland & Ellis, and he served as Solicitor General during the Bush administration. He's argued more cases before the Supreme Court since 2000 than any lawyer in or out of government. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Paul. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, So can you tell us about your pre-argument ritual? So, for example, we've heard Mike Carvin has been spotted outside of Jones Day pacing and practicing his argument. Do you have any similar ritual? Well, nothing quite like that. I mean, you know, my my pre-argument ritual is really, you know, pretty boring and consists mostly of just making sure I've gotten a a couple of moot courts in and done all the preparation I need to do before I go in front of the justices. You know, you can't really feel like you're over-prepared for a Supreme Court argument. So you definitely need to make sure that you've sort of built in time to prepare all the materials that you need and to do the moot court. So that that that's my, you know, no no magic donuts or anything like that. So speaking to law students at the University of Wisconsin, Justice Elena Kagan talked about how there are two kinds of oral advocates. There's Mr. Cool and Mr. Hot. She's previously described you as bringing electricity to the podium. Let me just read what Justice Kagan had to say about you. One gets up to the podium and the place just like throbs with energy. Everybody leans forward in their chairs. There's just so much tension and energy in the air. He's just tremendous, knocking everything out of the ballpark. So I think Justice Kagan might have a little bit of a crush on you. But could you tell us a little bit about how you developed your argument style and how you became, as Justice Kagan put it, Mr. Hot? Yeah, I think I think we got to work on that, though. I mean, Mr. Hot, Mr. Cool actually sounds better. <laughs> maybe, maybe like fire and ice. I like that a little better. Um, you know, I really think that there's an argument style really comes from two places. One is some of it is innate. I mean, you know, I, you know, I long before I argued any cases, I did 
debate in high school and college and had a certain sort of style that started to develop in some of those, uh, you know, different ways of speaking publicly and the like. And so I think part of any person's style is a little bit what comes naturally. And then the, you know, other piece of it is just, you know, what, what you get from watching great advocates in action. And, you know, I was really blessed, for example, to work in the Solicitor General's office uh, with, uh, you know, under Ted Olson as the Solicitor General at the beginning of the Bush 43 administration and obviously, you know, learned a tremendous amount from him. But, you know, I also, you know, even going back to the time I was clerking on the court, you know, it was a real pleasure to watch, you know, excellent advocates. And I don't think, you know, I can never copy somebody else's style because then it's it's not yours and it comes off artificially. But that doesn't mean you can't pick up something here, something there, see how somebody does, you know, one kind of answer in a particular way. And I think over time, uh, then, you know, it starts to become sort of your, the composite of all those great lawyers that you've watched, uh, you know, hopefully you can sort of put that together with your innate sort of style and, you know, you develop your way of, of, of handling questions at the podium. So what's it like arguing against a former boss like Ted Olson and other former colleagues? And can you tell us a little bit about the community of the SCOTUS bar in general? Sure. Well, you know, they're related. It's the the Supreme Court bar, you know, is one of these things you hear it talked about a lot. But, you know, it's not like their monthly meetings or a membership <laughs> card. I mean, you know, every, you know, you're technically a member of the Supreme Court bar and have a certificate from the court. But, you know, so do lots of people who uh, get their admission moved and then never appear in front of the Supreme Court. But, you know, there are a number of active practitioners in, you know, most of them based in D.C., a few based elsewhere, uh, who are repeat players in front of the Supreme Court. A lot of them have ties to the Solicitor General's office, um, but not all of them. And, you know, there really is a sense of... Uh, You know, I always like it when I have a lawyer on the other side of the case who is, you know, a Ted Olson, a Seth Waxman, uh, a Carter Phillips, you know, somebody who, you know, also is kind of known to the justices because, you know, ultimately as advocates, you're obviously trying to win the case for your client, but you're also trying to present the case to the Supreme Court and, you know, it's ultimately their case to decide and you want to present the issues to them as kind of cleanly and comprehensively as possible. So having somebody on the other side who's, you know, a consummate professional and somebody you really respect, I think is, uh, you know, just makes, essentially makes your job representing your client that much easier. And, uh, you know, a lot has been written about whether, you know, having repeat players is a good thing or a bad thing from, uh, you know, the perspective of the justice system or, you know, or the justices. But, you know, certainly from the advocate's perspective, you know, it's, it's it's, it's a real treat to get a chance to argue, you know, against somebody who, you know, you may feel like the next case, you know, they're going to be doing an amicus brief for you. I think it breeds a kind of a degree of collegiality that, you know, I think the whole bar could 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 use a little more of. So since entering private practice, do you have a strategy for seeking out clients or do people mostly come to you? I've read about how Tom Goldstein, who's famous for SCOTUS blog, um, how he used to cold call clients. Is that something you do? Well, I don't do a lot of that. Um, And, you know, that's one of these things where everybody does have their own sort of style of that, too. And, you know, Tommy is a uh, is is the consummate uh, entrepreneur as well as a a great lawyer. So, you know, I'm not surprised that he you know, his strategy was was pretty innovative in that respect. You know, my my theory on 
kind of developing sort of clients is, you know, the best thing you can do to get new clients is to serve your existing clients well. And so, you know, if, if you're if you're and that's true both in the sense that, you know, if you develop a reputation generally um, for, for presenting cases well on behalf of your clients, that's going to help you, uh, you know, get additional clients down the road. But also, you know, at, you know, it's, it's surprising to me, but, you know, even though the Supreme Court is taking cases usually from a generalist perspective and most of the members of the Supreme Court bar are kind of generalist appellate lawyers. You know, sometimes I'll get called about a case involving a particular statute because I previously argued a case involving the same statute. And, you know, the statute's not that long. I could I could read the statute. It doesn't really give me that much of a leg up to have been involved in the previous case. But nonetheless, you know, that's the way, uh, you know, people sort of make their decision when they're trying to seek out a lawyer. So so my philosophy has always been the best thing you can do is be out there doing cases, arguing cases. So do you have a favorite job throughout your career? Was it law clerk on the Supreme Court, Senate counsel, SG, private practice? Oh, it's tough. I've been blessed with, you know, a lot of really terrific jobs. You know, it's hard to beat, you know, law clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia as a job title. That That's that's way <laughs> yeah. up there. Um, you know, on a day-to-day basis, maybe the most enjoyable job was uh, principal deputy solicitor general because you have almost all of the fun of being solicitor general without any of the responsibility because <laughs> uh, ultimately the decisions are the solicitor general's decisions, not your your decisions. So that was probably the one that just on a day-to-day basis uh, I probably uh, just enjoyed the most. So speaking of Justice Scalia, what's the best memory of your time clerking for him? Well, it's hard to pick one. I mean, he was, uh, you know, just such a wonderful person. And, you know, some Supreme Court justices are sort of bookish and shy, and that's obviously not Justice Scalia. So we had a lot of uh, wonderful interactions with him. Uh, You know, Mrs. Scalia and the justice had us over for dinner, all of the law clerks, and that's, you know, a special memory. Uh, AV Restaurante was still uh, in existence over on New York Avenue, and we got over there for, for lunch a number of times. So that's another you know special set of memories in terms of being in chambers you know there was one day when we were working on a case together and i you know felt like i'd really messed up and missed some case that was unhelpful and so i very sheepishly brought it to the justice and he sort of you know read the case with a furrowed brow and then looked at me and said now this is our case um so i that's that's also kind of a special memory of uh, in chambers when you look back on more than 85 supreme court arguments what's the most memorable case for you well, you know, Supreme Court arguments, you know, are are a little like, you know, children. I mean, you know, they're all they're all special. Um, and, uh, you know, the one that always sticks out in my mind is the case that when I was in the government that I argued with Ted, um, you know, we both argued the government side of the case of McConnell against FEC. Um, and, you know, the reason that that case sticks out is, you know, you know, I, I do think that you know, that's not, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people watching the sort of Bush administration, you know, wondered whether the Bush administration would either even defend the statute because a lot of Republicans on the Hill uh, had opposed it. But, you know, the the president signed the bill and the bill, the McConnell uh rather the McCain-Feingold bill into law. Um, and then it was the job of the uh, SG's office to defend it. And, you know, we we defended the constitutionality of the statute. So part of it is just, you know, that that that's a case where I think, you know, the, the, the office and Ted and I were really kind of carrying on the traditions of the office. But the reason it really sticks out is more because that case 
when it got to the Supreme Court, was a very unmanageable case. Uh, it was before a three-judge district court in D.C., and the three judges produced four opinions. Um, it was the consolidation of something like uh, 11 different constitutional challenges that were all streamlined as part of a, you know, a, a provision right in the McCain-Feingold law to get the case to the Supreme Court quickly. But there were 11 different cases challenging 18 different provisions. I think there were 550 pages total of briefs on the challenger side. And we made a decision to file a single brief of about 140 pages, which is still a long brief. But I think it took the case from something that would have been really hard for the Supreme Court to manage and turned it into a case that looked a little bit more like a normal Supreme Court case and was a case that, you know, the court could effectively decide and manage. And it's really, you know, again, you know, lots, lots said about the Solicitor General's office, but I do think that in addition to representing the executive branch, you know, the office really sort of values its role uh, at trying to help the Supreme Court do their job. And that's probably the case more than any other where I think, you know, the office really helped the court kind of do their job and made a case that could have been unmanageable, manageable for them. That really demonstrates why sometimes the SG is called the 10th justice. Or the 36th law clerk. But, yeah, <laughs> e- either way, either way. Uh, so one final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, you know, I think I'd have to pick Justice Scalia and ask him, how is it up there? Um, and, you know, to have all my theological questions answered, that would really be something. Um, but it'd be fun, too, to get, you know, Chief Justice Marshall back and talk to him about where the court has gone and what he thinks of fine Madeira. So that would be fun, too. Well, Paul, thanks for joining us. You bet. So we'll wrap up with a game, Supreme Trivia, first Monday edition. So as we talked about last week on the podcast, the justices start hearing arguments on the first Monday of October. You know, it's kind of like a holiday for uh, Supreme Court nerds. Called first it's like Monday. Christmas morning. Yes. So Elizabeth, why does the Supreme Court start its term on the first Monday in October. I think it's required by statute. Yes, that's right, because Congress says so. So early (laughs) in the court's history, the court had two terms, uh, one starting in February and one in August. Um, Eventually, it moved to just one term. And then in 1916, Congress passed a law changing the term start date to the first Monday in October. It's like back to school, back to school, back to court. (laughs) I I think it's a good time of year. Okay, second question. Before 1964, when the court started hearing oral arguments on the first day of the term, who did the justices visit? Who did they visit before oral arguments started? Well, so initially, there were no oral arguments on the very first day of the term. So they visited somebody. Visited someone. Did they visit the the president? Yes, oh, the president. Well, and they're still waiting for their dinner with President Trump that got postponed. They are. How many months now? Four months and yeah, counting. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> um, Maybe yes. Gorsuch will bring his steak rub. <laughs> so initially, the the first day of the term was mostly ceremonial, and the justices made a trip to the White House to visit the president. Next question. Um, as I'm sure you've seen at the court, there's a massive bronze statue of John Marshall. You know, people, whenever I go to the court, it's usually, I'll meet you by Marshall. So who has sculpted that statue? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. But it is a very impressive statue. Um, yeah, I don't know. 
So it was William Westmore's story, the son of Justice Joseph Story. Oh, that's cool. Yes. So the statue originally found its home on the West Terrace of the Capitol in 1884 when the Supreme Court still met there. Mm -hmm. Um, And the statue moved to Supreme Court in 1982. Oh, wow. So not till many decades after the, the court had its own building. Yeah. Well, I think it's a really nice um, kind of imposing welcome into the court. You see this man sort of reclined in his chair, both <laughs> arms on the arm the armrest. So. It's so big. Yeah. Well, meet me at Marshall. <laughs> okay. Final question. Uh, what sports are prohibited while the court is in session? Ooh, ooh, I know this one. Basketball, because the actual highest court in the land is a basketball court that is above the actual courtroom in the Supreme Court building. Yes, I'll give you I'll give you 3 quarters of the point cuz I said sports weightlifting is also prohibited. So <laughs> there's a sign um in case someone drops outside the court the, put up by the court's marshal that says, do not assume the court that court is over. Contact the marshal's office before if you, you lift want to play basketball or lift weights. <laughs> I think there's a there's a funny story. I think uh, Byron White was recused from some case. Um, so he went up during the argument and was playing basketball, and they could hear the ball bouncing <laughs> during during court. So uh, Chief Justice um, Rehnquist wrote a note and had the marshal take it up there and said, like, whoever's playing basketball is fired. Um, <laughs> and so Justice White wrote a note back that was like, sorry, Bill, you can't fire me. See Article 3. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then he stopped He stopped playing basketball. And since then, they've they've put up a sign. Yeah, I don't know if um, playing basketball during uh, during oral argument is grounds for impeachment, but uh, <laughs> that's that's an interesting anecdote. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can also email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.